a psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My words, my wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it is also gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. All who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear, like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, I do wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let them not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin, but my foes are vigorous, They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good, accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Amen. It was interesting this week as I kind of just got around town and I ran into different people from Rio how many people said to me that they just thought that was like the most depressing psalm ever. Like even my wife, like she tried to find the kindest way to say it, but we were going for a walk and she's like, you know, Psalm 38 is kind of a downer, you know? And, and, uh, and I said, well, that's ironic uh, because here's what I want to do with it. And by the way, the gospel is ironic. I want to use it to uplift you. I want to use it to encourage you. It's a lament psalm. For the record, most of the psalms are lament psalms, and there's a lot of lament in life. I think that teaches us a little something. But I think this psalm is incredibly encouraging, and I'm going to tell you why I think it's encouraging. It's encouraging because as you enter into the sufferings of David, he so graphically describes them, and in fact, he so graphically describes them that you want them not only to end for him, but for you as you read through it, don't you? I mean, it's like, come on, I'm dying alongside of you here. As you enter into these graphically described sufferings of David, if you enter into it with the mind of the gospel, with the eyes of faith, with the New Testament knowledge and understanding of Jesus, what do you find? You find a very clear picture of the sufferings of Jesus contained within the sufferings of David written a thousand years before Jesus is even born. It's an astonishing thought. I think it's pretty obvious. Jesus, the great sufferer, God made man to suffer. 
And to what end? Like, why would the creator God of the universe clothe himself in our humanity through a supernatural conception, enter into our humanity as one of us to go through what he went through? Why would he do that? And here's what you want to say. You want to say, okay, so he would do that to pay the penalty for our sins. He would do that to forgive us of our sins, to pay the debt that we owe to God. Why do we owe God a debt? Because he created us. He is the author of our very being. He created us for the greatest and most dignified purpose ever, which is to devote our lives perfectly to him and to his service and to his worship. Nothing higher or better that we could have ever done with our lives. And yet we have stolen what we owe him from him by doing what? Using our lives to worship and serve lesser things like ourselves. And it's a debt that by definition we cannot pay because we can't go back and get it right. And we already owe him every moment going forward. So now what? Now the God that we rebelled against in the person of Jesus Christ entered into this world to live the life we've not and then to offer his perfect life as a sacrifice to pay the debt that we've accumulated because he loves us, because he wants relationship with us. He removed every obstacle and barrier between us at his own expense, the innocent dying for the guilty. It is absolutely a right answer to say that Jesus entered into the world and he suffered and died and he rose again from the dead to forgive us of our sins. That's true, but that's not the whole truth. There's so much more. And one of many other aspects is that he suffered and died. He rose again from the dead so that every single one of us and all of us are sufferers at various times in our lives will know definitively that a day is coming upon which all of our suffering will end, for that day will give way to an eternal world in which there will be no more suffering, none, zip, zero, and in which as well we will, com- we will finally understand why we suffered what we did in this life. And beyond that, and you can only say this with faith, because otherwise it sounds crazy, really. Beyond that, having been overwhelmed by the wisdom of God, by the architecture of God of our individual lives, in which he wrote into our stories seasons at times of intense and great suffering, we will for forever, having seen what he has brought out of it, and we can't always see that in this life, praise and thank and worship God for causing us to suffer. Let that sink in. That is a remarkable thought, and that is the power of the gospel of our God. It's amazing. It teaches us that, hey, our suffering is going to end, and hey, by the way, it's going to end in eternal praise. Oh, and in between then and now, in between then and now, we have a Savior who is well acquainted with suffering, who walks with us in our suffering, and who helps us to carry the burdens that we cannot. So I don't know about you, But when I look at it that way, I find it very uplifting. David begins Psalm 38 with this. He says, a Psalm of David for the memorial offering. And then he says this in verse one. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And I know we're just getting going and I know the Psalm is long, but I want to stop for a second and tell you what's going on in this man's life. David is suffering intense physical pain and his intense physical pain has caused him also to suffer intense emotional pain. We are composite beings, all of us made up of a variety of parts and that are all connected. They all affect the other. 
David is suffering intense pain, guys, and it is not unjust pain. It is not unwarranted agony. It is not what I would call undeserved suffering, but instead, he's telling us right out of the gate, it is caused by God. It is the rebuke and the discipline of the Lord for which he offers no defense. Like, nowhere in this psalm does he go, you know what, you're really treating me unfairly here. Like, come on, he doesn't protest his innocence. Instead, he completely acknowledges that this is God's righteous response in his life. He takes it. No complaints. But he does ask for relief. And so again, he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And then he says, For your arrows. And incidentally, what do arrows do? They pierce you. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand in the picture that David is painting here is of God as a warrior doing battle against him from afar with his arrows and up close with a club in his hand. And your hand, he says, has come down on me, and it is a crushing blow. And as a result of this piercing and of this crushing, David says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. And the flesh is that which covers the outside of us, but he doesn't leave the inside out. For he then says, and there is no health in my bones. And when the Bible talks about our bones, it's not talking about the bones of our body literally. It's talking about our psyche. It's talking about that which is in the innermost parts of us. He says, there's no health in my bones. I've been crushed physically and emotionally because of my sin, which I'm not denying or hiding or excusing or trying to minimize or find a way out of. And then he says this, he says, and I love this statement. He says, for my iniquities have gone over my head like a tidal wave or like a flood. And then he says, and like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. And I just want to stop there for a second and try to bring that home by just asking you, All right, so what in your life right now is too heavy for you? And I think typically we know the answer to that because it's crushing us. You know, and it becomes our focus in life as opposed to the Lord, incidentally. But I think sometimes we don't. And oh, by the way, it could be more than one thing. As I started thinking about all the different options, like there are a lot of alternatives. I'll give you a few. What problem in your life that you're dealing with right now is just, it's too heavy for you. It is. It's a riddle you cannot solve. It's a knot you can't untie. There's no key to the lock. And it's crushing you. What sin? What addiction is too heavy for you? As you stand before it, you stand helpless. As you stand under it, it flattens you. What guilt or shame or regret? What sorrow? What feelings of insignificance or or unworthiness? Inadequacies? Man, that's heavy. What need to be perfect or to keep everyone happy? That's crushing. What responsibility or duty? What sickness or disease? And since all of these things cause suffering of various kinds and of various measures, I could just ask it this way, generalize it. Okay, so what suffering are you enduring in your life right now that truth be known is too heavy for you? Because we're going to see that the sufferings of David contain the sufferings of Jesus, just like our sufferings contain, if you will, the sufferings of Jesus. And even when we don't see them, David doesn't see this pattern that I'm going to show you at the end of this message. As he writes this psalm, Jesus won't be born for another thousand years. But it's there. Our sufferings identify us with a suffering Jesus who does not leave us to suffer alone. Not only will they end and end in eternal praise, got got it, but now 
we have one to help us carry them. We find a friend in Him, and in Him we find relief. And He's defeated it in an ultimate sense, which will be our victory in an ultimate sense at the cross. And it's the cross and all the sufferings that go with it Really, that we see in this psalm, beginning here again in verse 4, where, where David says, my wounds, which then begs the question, of course, of what wounds? And the wounds he's already talked about are piercing and beating. We got that. But the word wound here refers specifically to the welt or to the lacerations left on someone's body who has been whipped. Interesting. Piercings, beatings lacerations, whips. My wounds, David says, stink and fester because of my foolishness. He's saying the moral corruption for which I bear the weight is manifesting itself in the wounds of my physical body. It's corrupting my body and I am utterly bowed down and prostrate under the weight of the burden that I am carrying and enduring for sin. All the day I go about mourning for my sides, which refer to his low back, the area between his ribs and pelvis and his lower back, are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crush all my strength is drained, and I groan because of the tumult or because of the agony of my heart. And then he cries out, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. What is he saying? He's saying, God, you know exactly who I am. You know exactly where I am. You know exactly what I'm experiencing in this moment. How could he not? He knows everything. And he is intimately acquainted with everything to do with every one of us. And so then David continues and says, so then here's what else you know. You know that my life's about done here. Like, I am coming toward death. He says, my heart throbs. It's palpitating. Its beat is no longer sure and certain. It's wearing out and my strength fails me. And the light of my eyes, which speaks of conscious life, when you're awake and conscious, you can see. It's the light of your eyes. He says, yeah, well, it has also gone from me. And as if that's not enough, and think of Jesus, David a thousand years earlier than Christ, says, my friends and companions want nothing to do with me in this the darkest hour of my suffering, for they stand aloof from my plague. They abandon me, and my nearest kin stand far off. However, David says, those who seek my life, my enemies, well, they see this as their opportunity to be done with me. They come, and with their words is the idea. They lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak there it is, of ruin and meditate treachery all day long, fomenting hate against me and seeking to bring me to death with their lies. And so what does David do? Does he defend himself from the attack of his enemies, their words, their accusations, their slander? No. He says, but I am like a deaf man. I do not hear like a mute man who does not open his mouth. I've become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. He says nothing. He offers no defense. He trusts himself instead to the Lord. He says, but for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. And notice his primary concern because his concern is not himself and the alleviation of this outrageously intense suffering that he's experiencing. His concern is for the name and for the fame of God. Why? Because David is the anointed king of Israel and he's about to be overwhelmed by his enemies. And so then, Lord, he's saying, how will it look for you 
if I suffer the humiliation of defeat. In other words, I will not only be suffering the humiliation of defeat, but you too will. His concern is for the Lord. He says, only let them, meaning my enemies, not rejoice over me, who boast against me when my foot slips, for I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity and I'm sorry for my sin, but my foes, he says, are vigorous. They are, they are mighty. And many are those who hate me wrongfully, those who render me evil for good. Accuse me because I follow after good. And so then here's his closing plea. He says, do not forsake me, O Lord, O my God. Be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation, because if you fail to do so, we will both suffer the humiliation of defeat. And I, David, don't want that for you. And you say, well, you know, now I understand why some of those folks thought it was depressing as you ran into them during the course of this week. Certainly it's real. It's intense. And I think it also raises some pretty significant questions about suffering. So I think, for example, it raises the question about whether or not the suffering that we experience in this life as Christians should be interpreted by us as the judgment of God, as the punishment of God. And the gospel answer to that very simply is no, that Jesus Christ entered into this world to pay all the debt, not some of it. 100% of it, not 98. He paid it all. We sing that song at times. All to Him we owe. So then if Jesus received 100% of our punishment, there's no percentage left. But it can be the discipline of God. It can be the instruction of God. It can be the rebuke of God. It is very oftentimes the instrument that God uses to humble us, to break us, to bring Him to Himself, to mature us, to grow us, to give us opportunity to proclaim Him. And I find as well oftentimes that God allows us to experience in this life the consequences of our foolishness. Happens all the time, does it not? But when it happens, here's what we don't wonder. We don't wonder why. And when we, when we drink so much that we destroy our body, our liver, for example, there is great suffering in that, okay? But we don't wonder why. When our addiction to pornography destroys our marriage, there is great suffering in that, but it's not hard to connect the dots. So then that leads to the next question about suffering, which is, well, what about when you can't connect the dots? What about when there is just absolutely no apparent reason? What about when you and everyone you know just rack their brains trying to figure out why in the world would this ever happen to you? In fact, it doesn't make any sense. It seems contrary to the kinds of things that God would be doing. You ever wonder about that? I wonder about that all the time. I wonder about it for me sometimes. I wonder about it for a lot of you guys. As I thought about that this week, I thought of Bill and Gail Kelly. Bill and Gail are dear friends and longtime members of this church. And what occurred to me yesterday as I was thinking about sharing this is that probably at this point, most of the people who call Rio their church don't know who they are. Which for some of us long-termers, is an astonishing thought. Bill and Gail were some of the most active members of our church and of our school uh, that you could have ever met or found up until about seven or eight years ago when Bill uh, began to seriously suffer the effects of Parkinson's disease, which has effectively robbed him of virtually all of his capacities at this point in life. And it's sort of taken them out of the game. But prior to that, man, those guys were unbelievable parts 
of this church. You know, Bill is a longtime elder of this church. Uh, he is an indomitable force. You are going to hear what Bill has to say. And, uh, and 99% of the time, what he has to say is wisdom. Bill has had a lot of very short, direct conversations with me, for which I am thankful for every single one of them. Truly a great man, the best personal evangelist that I have ever met. If Bill and Gail were still active in this church, I wouldn't need to say, hey, let me describe them to you because you would know exactly who they are. And here's why you would know. Because the first time you walked in the door, you would have met one of the two of them. Bill would have invited you to go out to lunch. He would have picked you up. He would have paid for the lunch and he would have shared the gospel with you. There will be hundreds of people in heaven because Bill Kelly cared more about the gospel than selling a car at his car dealership that he used to own. Or because he took somebody to lunch and shared the gospel with them. And for every great and wonderful thing about Bill that I could say, and there's a lot more, I'm not kidding, I could say five about Gail, and he'd be upset with me if I didn't say that. It's a fact. But they've been kind of out of the game for a while now. Our youth team hosted a lunch for them about two and a half years ago. And we hosted it up in the attic. And the reason we hosted it up in the attic, which is our youth facility on the north side of Bethany Christian School, is because the attic was actually Bill's idea. We had raised a bunch of money and we were going to build like a freestanding building and furnish it all inside and make it awesome and amazing. And, and Bill came to the realization that the furnishings on the inside was actually going to be the most amazing part of it. And we didn't have enough money to do all of it. So he called me one day and said, you know what? We should just can the idea of building the building. I know we've got a lot of invested in that. I know we've you know, got pictures and we've shown video. Forget it. We need to take all the money and we need to renovate an existing space on the north side of Bethany Christian School's second floor. Let's do that. And he was right. If wisdom is known by her children, by what she produces, I think there's no question, looking back at that now, 10 years hence at least, that that was wisdom. Brilliant idea. And they threw themselves into the attic, into who was going to design it and all of the different things. And down to the last minute when we had the grand opening, they were working like day and night together with a whole team of people to get the place ready. And when we opened it, we had 300 kids. It was like a carnival was amazing. So the attic is where they hosted the lunch and they presented them with a book with all these pictures of all these students and different activities and all these things that have happened over the course of the last decade or so in the attic and all of these different notes from kids, you know, and some of them are kids that, that the Kellys knew, like my kids, for example, but a lot of them are, are brand new names to them. Like they don't even know these kids who have been blessed by the youth ministry in this particular facility. And so anyway, after the lunch, they went home and I went back to my office and, uh, and I wrote Gail an email. I sent it, she's the only one who checks the computer. So I sent it to her, but it's really to them. And I want to read it to you because I think there are a lot of us who suffer and we have no idea why. In fact, it seems contrary to what the Lord would do. And so you look at a guy like Bill and you're like, Lord, why would you take a guy who is such an amazing personal evangelist and take him out of the game? Why would you take these people who are so heart and soul to everything that we're doing and, and put them on the sideline? Why would, you, why would you do that? Maybe you wonder that for you. So this is what I would tell you, I guess. I said, hey, Gail, it was great to see you guys at lunch today. I really hope that you enjoy the little book that these guys put together for both of you. It's a very small slice of the very big difference that you guys have made and continue to make for your work as an enduring work in the lives of so very many people. Okay, hang on. 
I had a thought that I didn't really get a chance to share, but that I hope will be encouraging to you both. If the book of Job, and the book of Job is a book in the Bible about a righteous man who suffers for good reason, but he knows none of those good reasons. They're hidden from him. If the book of Job makes anything clear, it is that there are really two audiences for each of our lives. There is the visible audience of our friends and family and co-workers and so forth, and there is the invisible audience before whom our lives play out as well. Moreover, that book makes it clear that our lives often play out in ways that make no sense to us or to others here in this visible world, but that make perfect sense in light of the audience and happenings of heaven. And so then even though you guys must feel very alone at times and as though this disease has really taken you out of the game, so to speak, I at least don't believe that's true. I believe that your lives are just playing out before a very different and far more significant audience. And I think that in the end, what you'll discover is that your most productive, God-glorifying years will have been the ones that you labeled as least productive. You guys are heroic in both heaven and earth, and very precious to both as well. And I hope today was a little reminder of that. Love you both, Tom. Life does not always make sense. And it's not even rational for us to demand that it does. Like we can comprehend everything and understand everything. No, we can't. But we can trust the one who has suffered, who suffers with us, and for whom it does make sense, and who can help us carry our burdens. And you say, well, then where do we get the strength to suffer? And it's from that one. It's pretty simple, really. It's from Jesus, and now I'll show you the pattern from the psalm, who, like David, suffered God's wrath for sin, except David suffered for his own. And Jesus suffered for mine, and for yours, if you'll have Him. Whose body, like David's, was pierced and crushed, bore the marks of whips and beatings, who endured the searing back pain of the scourging, who was bowed down and made prostrate under the weight of the cross that He was forced to carry in our place. Whose heart palpitated until it did stop, And the light of his eyes went out completely. Jesus, who was abandoned in his hour of greatest need by those closest to him, but whose enemy drew near, who by their words his enemies did what? With their lies, they took his life, returning evil to him for all the good that he had done. Jesus, who like David, did not protest his innocence, even though unlike David, he actually was innocent. Jesus, whose concern in the midst of his sufferings was not the alleviation of his sufferings, but the vindication of God's name in the face of his enemies, and in addition to that, you and I. Jesus, who unlike David, fully entered the realm of death, and like David, was delivered from death and fully vindicated as God's true king through resurrection. And to what end? Because it wasn't just to forgive our sins, and it wasn't even just so that, okay, we'll know that suffering will end and end in eternal praise. It was so that in between that day and this one, we find a friend in Him. We find one who can identify with us. We find one who walks together with us and who helps us to carry the sufferings that He Himself ordains for us and that we will one day praise Him for. And so in between then and now, here's what we can do. We can take the things that are too heavy for us 
and we can give them to him. Corey Ten Boom says this, and I think it's brilliant. She says, you will find it necessary to let things go. You ready? Simply for the reason that they are too heavy. And the gospel says you can let them go to Jesus. So, it's a one-question message. What are you carrying that's too heavy for you right now? Because Christ would invite you to give it to Him, to let Him walk with you, to let Him carry it with you. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we praise You that You have not abandoned us to our own devices. We praise You, Lord, that the burdens that You ordain for us in life will not be our final end. They will not in the end win. For our victory is won and assured in Christ. We thank You for the One who has given Himself that we might have Him. Who has bought us out of our sin and and has given us life and life eternal. And I pray, Lord, now that You would give us the faith by which to live in light of Your Gospel, to lay our burdens down at Your feet, knowing that we are not designed and made to carry them alone, but designed to carry them with Him who has ordained them for our good. Give us eyes to look for the good. And faith to believe, even when we cannot see it, that it exists. So Lord, we thank You for the goodness that is ours in Christ Jesus, and we pray that we might honor Him with the faith that we express and with the lives that we live. In Jesus' name, amen.